You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We are in a series called The Story of You, and I'm just out of curiosity, I'm going to say, how many of you took the test this week, the Enneagram test? You went online, you took the test, right? Hands all over the place. How many of you still need to take the test? All right, get on it. You're going to want to get on that. And we want every single person in the church taking the test. We've got the link directly from our website, and you can go ahead and take the test there. And it's going to help you discover you more clearly. And if you were at the men's retreat last week, welcome back. We had a great kickoff. We had a phenomenal men's retreat. Would you give it up for the guys who put that thing together? That was awesome. But we're in a series called The Story of You, and one of the things I want you to realize is that the story of you only makes sense within the big picture story of God. If you want life to be just all about you, you're going to always look to God to try to make your story happen. And that's not discipleship. That's not what authentic discipleship looks like. Discipleship says, God, I want to be placed in the big picture story of you. I'm not looking for a handout from you, God. I'm looking for you to do the good in and through me that you want to do because you've specifically placed me in a time and a place in history. You've created my soul. You've created my spirit. You've created my body. And God, I want to be used by you. And so my story has got to fit in the big picture story of you. But it's hard to understand what that story is unless you understand you. So we're in a series called The Story of You. And I believe it's a series that even if you've never been to church will actually reform your life. I want you to know that Christianity is a relational movement. It's not a religion. It's a relational movement upwards toward God, outward toward other people, and inward toward our soul. We need to know ourselves. Jesus said... The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and to love your neighbor, wait for it, as yourself. That you and I, we need to learn to love ourselves. We need to know what is it unique that God has created in me and how does my story fit within the big picture story of God? Because again, the story of you only makes sense within the big story of God. Have you ever wondered, why would God love me? Why did God send his son to die on the cross, taking my sins upon himself and having his sin, his righteousness transferred to me? It's a totally unfair trade, but that God gets all my junk and my sin and my pride and my wickedness and that his righteousness gets transferred to me. Have you ever wondered why would God do that? Maybe for some people, but why for me? Why do I have that kind of value? Why do I matter so much to God? You see, the Bible isn't all about God. It's about God's love for you. And so you and I, we need to understand ourselves. And for a lot of us, those who even particularly grew up in a church, sometimes it's hard for us to own and say that God loves me. It's hard for us to say that, that you and I matter. You might say other people matter. But it's hard for you to say that I matter. So the story of you only makes sense within the big story of God. So look, for the next couple of weeks, I believe that this sermon series is going to change your life. It'll change your marriage. It'll change the way that you see and relate to others. It'll change the way that you see and understand and communicate to your kids. And, and, and some of you, after this series, you're going to say, I totally understand my spouse. Like, I have understood, you know, my spouse in a whole new way. And for a lot of us, it, uh, you know, it, it's, a lot of us are thinking that I need to know others at work, 
I need to know others in my house. I need to know others that I've related to. I need to know others that I've had conflict with in the past because I didn't understand me and I didn't understand them. And I need to understand people better because that's in the very heart of God. And some of you, after this series, you might actually like your spouse again. And you can laugh for that if they're not sitting next to you. But you might actually get invited back next week. And you know for some of you, it's going to give you a chance to finally get along with that person at work that you haven't gotten along with. It will help you finally raise your kids without just judging them all the time, but have some compassion on them and, and knowing how to communicate what is in your heart to them a little bit better and understanding who they are because kids are different. I mean, have you noticed that people are different? We're different because of socioeconomical backgrounds. We're different because of race. We're different because of gender. I mean, God has made us different. And as different people, we not only perceive and process things differently, but we also sin. We're all sinners, but we sin in very different ways. And praise be to God that he has overcome our sin. I mean, isn't it interesting that you can be raised in exactly the same environment? But you look at your brother or sister and you go, where were you raised? Like, what is up with you? Like, you look at the person right next to you and you're like, we had the same upbringing, but you perceive and process our upbringing so different than I do. Where in the world were you raised? You begin to look at them like that. Well, the Enneagram, this tool that we're using over the next couple of weeks, has helped me to understand people. And it's that first step in understanding ourselves because we're going to use this tool that God began to teach you about yourself. We want God to begin to teach you about you. Isn't that what God does? God doesn't just walk up to you and reveal everything wrong with you. What he does is he helps you understand you, and then you and I say, I have a need for God. Like, I see myself as I really am, and I realize my need for him. So God doesn't just force a bunch of information about himself on you. What he does is God's Holy Spirit begins to reveal you and the condition of your life and no matter how hard you've tried, the ways that you still just don't have it right. And that he comes along and says, I'm the answer to your sin problem. That's what God does. And so it helps us relate because we are different and we sin in very different ways. So we're going to start today with a personality type called the reformer. The reformer. I want you to know this is not me. I'm not the reformer. Uh, this is also called the good person or the person who wants to do right, the person who wants to do good. They were born that way from the very beginning. They wanted to be a good person. Their form of rebellion is doing the right thing where another person's form of rebellion is finding every wrong thing to do and doing that. But that's it. You might be the reformer if that's you. I did not grow up this way. I've been broken since the day I was born. The reformer is a person who sees how things could be. They see how things could be. And so write this down if you're taking notes today. If you're a one, you're kind of a perfectionist. You want the world to be a better place and you see flaws. It's easy for you. You can walk into anywhere and see the flaws. You can interact with any people and you begin immediately, even though maybe you're not even trying, but you begin to see how things could be and you have the capacity to see flaws. And in this passage in the Bible that we're looking at today, Jesus tells the story of two sons, two very different sons, but he begins to tell us about two different sons and kids are different, wouldn't you agree? That is, you're raising your kids, there are certain kids, you just give them a look, they'll never do it again. They're probably ones. There are other kids that you have to work with them, and even if you discipline them, they dig in their heels, and they're like, I got to learn it on my own, and we're just very different, aren't we? 
We're going to look at the story God tells about kids who are different. And I want to let you know that, again, it's really important, like Sun Grove Church, we want to come alongside the family. We want to come alongside the family and say, how can we help and assist you in this big effort of being parents and raising children in a way that you understand them and they understand you and they can understand God's heart for their life. And so even this Thursday night, we've got the Confident Parenting Seminar. And expert Jim Burns is going to be coming and he's going to be sharing with us about healthy sexuality, how to communicate healthy sexuality to our kids in a culture that is just sex-saturated. So how do we as parents, because a lot of us, if we're being honest, we didn't get good sex education, particularly from our parents when we were growing up, and so we don't know how to communicate that to our kids in a way that they'll understand. And so this is for parents and for grandparents, and I think you'll really be blessed by that. You can register in the lobby or online, obviously, about that. It's just one of the things we do. It's one of our values at Sun Grove Church that we care for the generations and we care for the future. We believe that our children are the church of right now. They're not the future. They are the church and that they are just as much the church as you and I. And we want to come alongside and place a high value that everything we're doing here so much is for the next generation. That's why we do that. Because we believe that God can break generational curse. We believe that God can change the course of your life, that he can make your life better and the lives of your kids to break the curse of the generations and the patterns and the habits and the hang-ups that our families have inherited and then handed to us. We believe that God is one who redeems those and changes the course of families and their lives. Now, we're going to look at this story that is called the story of the prodigal son. It's kind of sad that it's been called the story of the prodigal son because this story is actually a story about two boys. I always call it the, the lost boys, that there are two sons, both are lost, both are in their degree of sin, and we're going to look at them today, and we're going to look at this passage that Jesus began to talk about. It, what's interesting is that the son who messes up his life, who squanders everything, who runs far away and acts very far away from God is actually the son who in the story gets close to God. Isn't that interesting? The one who went the furthest away is actually the one who draws close to God. And yet there's another son in the story, and we're going to look at that here today. We often overlook the other one, but well, let's look at both today. If you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 15. This may be familiar to many of you, and it says this. In Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between who? Them, the two sons, right? Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild what? Living, wild living. Now, it doesn't describe what wild living is. All we know is that he went away and he got crazy and he had a good time. And in your mind, you're, the picture of what that looks like for you is going to be different than the picture somebody else's mind looks like. But you can picture something. He went away and he squandered everything he had. But let's just tell I just want to tell you something that he kind of squanders it before he leaves. Because he has a good relationship. He has a good security. He has great authority in this family. This family has a degree of wealth. And he comes to his dad, and he basically says the most horrible thing a son could say to his father. He says, Dad, I actually wish you were dead now. I actually want what you have more than I want relationship with you. That's what it's saying. It's scandalous for someone to come. So what happens? The dad divides everything he has between the older son, who would get 
two-thirds because he's the oldest son. He gets a double portion. He gets the birthright, the older son. But to this younger son, he gives a third of all that he had. And the son runs off and he squanders his wealth in wild living. And that's what happens a lot of times when young people are given too much wealth too young. They didn't earn it. They don't know how to handle it. And they oftentimes blow through it and they kind of ruin their lives along the way. They're, they're not taught how to invest it, how to make it grow, and how to have good financial stewardship of it. So his life begins to fall apart. And that's the condition of this son. In verse 14, it says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And so he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed what? Okay, Jewish boy feeding the bacon, right? He's touching unclean animals. It just shows it's a picture of the condition of his life. The, the unfathomable thing is where his life has led him. He goes on and says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out. I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, he starts his rehearsal, right? Here's what I'm going to say, God. I'm going to apologize to you. And the father represents God. The son could represent you or I. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off right there. Stop your excuses. Stop your rehearsal. The father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now I want you to know what happens here. Let me give you a picture. The robe that the dad asked for is not just a robe that the son didn't really love and, and just kind of left behind. He didn't look at him and go, man, your clothes are bad. Let's get one of your old outfits and put it on you. It's not what happened. No, the robe he's calling for is the most expensive piece of clothing in the house. It's the robe that we reserve for when wealthy people or dignitaries visited. And he says, let's put that on the sun. He says, let's get the ring. It would be like the signet ring, the ring of authority, the ring of ownership, the, the ring of your part of God's forever family. Let's get that ring and put it on your finger so you stand as a son of the most high God, right, is what he's saying. And so let's get that ring. And then he said, let's put sandals on his what? On his feet. Why is this important? Remember, he's been a slave. His life has you know, gone all the way down to the point where he's a slave. When you and I go to India, and we work with the least of these in the furthest out regions in the rural regions of India, we walk into these villages, and, and it's a unique thing because you'll see some people there who have like a cell phone. They look like they're dressed really nice, and, and they oftentimes are ones who are sex trafficked because they have money. Because we're going to the poorest villages, the least of these. But you see others who are not being sex trafficked, but they are the delete, the lowest of the low, the mushar, the, the lowest caste system. And you can almost always identify who those are. You want to know why or how? They don't have shoes. Look at this picture.
you're wealthy if you have shoes. I mean, I don't know how many of you, your closet looks like a middle of the Marcos's closet. But even if you have one pair in a place like that, you're wealthy. And that's how you tell the difference. You walk in and you know immediately they're of the lowest caste. You don't have to ask them. Why? Because they don't have shoes. They're slaves. That's what they do. It's what they are. No one gives them anything, just like this son here. He, he, was in de- he desired, he was trying to work, but no one gave him anything. So he comes back as a slave to say, let me be one of your hired servants. And the dad says, no, 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 I'm putting shoes on your feet. Do you see what the dad did there? Not only that, he says, let's get the fattened calf. This calf that we've had and we've been fattening it, we want to have a great barbecue. Let's get that, and we're going to go ahead and throw a party. He's my son, and we're going to throw a party. And then Jesus begins to transfer the story. You realize all the people standing around listening to Jesus, among them are Pharisees. Religious leaders, religious people, people who are so good at doing maybe the right things and doing it in front of everybody so that they appear right in front of everyone. And, and they know at the end of telling this story that Jesus is talking about them among other people. They know that some of this story is pointed at them. And there's a lot of people standing around who are like, dude, the younger son, that's me. That is so me. That is my story. God, you've done that in me. And, and, and I'm still, in a way, maybe you're here today because that's been you. And you're realizing that God wants to throw up in his arms and hug you and bring you and say, you are my son or my daughter, that I love you. And you're, why, why, God, why would you love me? He's saying, stop the excuses, receive my love, I love you. But now Jesus transitions in the story and we find out what's happening with the other son. Luke 15, verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the what? Field. Hey, he's doing what he should do. He should be out there working, right? When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, you know that here at church, we love to hire Enneagram Ones. You know why? Because they get stuff done. Like, they're responsible. They're out in the field. They're doing what needs to be done. They want to do the right thing. In most cases, they're going to do the right thing. We love to hire them because they get stuff done. Well, where is he? He's in the field. He's working when you, maybe potentially the idiot brother, comes home. He's out working while you finally come home. That's what he's doing. So he asked the servant, hey, what's going on? And he says, your brother has come home. And he already knows that. You want to know why he already knows his brother come home? Because he hears Coachella going on at the house, right? He can hear the music and the dancing, and he knows. Without even looking, he knows his brother's come home, but he wants to know, so what's happened to him? That's what he's really trying to find out. I have a pretty good idea of where he's been and what he's been doing, and I want to know what's happened to him. So number two on your outline, this person is the reformer. You want to reform most things around you. They are the good person. They want to do the right thing. They get stuff done. They're the good person. That's who the one is on the Enneagram one. You're the reformer. So let me ask, reformers, where are you in your car? What are you doing when you're in your car? I want to ask all of you, what are you doing when you're in your car? You know what ones are doing? They're driving. They're not playing with their phone. They're not texting. They're not doing that. They are praying for your soul while they're in the car 
If you have a one in the shotgun seat, they're going to like slap your hand if you reach for your phone. They're going to say, keep your eyes on the road. They're going to tell you everything you need to do. They're going to commend you when you do what's right. But, that, but what's going to happen is you are driving. You're doing the right thing. They do good deeds. They know the good deeds that they do, and they get stuff done. And I want to say here today, because I think a lot of people want to downplay that, and I want to be very careful because ones, when you or I want to be good, we can instantly think of all the things and areas where we're not. And so we can condemn ourselves more than anybody else. And I want to say today, praise God for you if you're a one. God created you that way. I praise God for you if you're a one. You, listen, there is no Sun Grove Church without ones. There's not. They do stuff. There's no kingdom without you. They serve. You give your time. You show up. You build. You do the right thing. When everyone else is doing the unwise thing, you're doing the right thing. Praise God for you ones. It's good. And God has created you in a unique way. You are typically the good person. But here's what happens to this one that Jesus reveals us in the Bible, an unhealthy one. And you can be a healthy one or an unhealthy one. And what Jesus is pointing out is some of the effects of an unhealthy one. So you can be a one here, and this may or may not be you, but let me tell you what an unhealthy one looks like, as Jesus told us. Luke 15, 28, the older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Let me ask, how many sons in the same day did the father pursue? Two. He ran out to meet his son who was coming home, but he noticed that he, I have another son. I have someone else who is refusing to come into the party, who's refusing with his arms crossed to come in and be a part of what God is doing. So God the Father in the, in the nature of this father goes out and pleads with his son, but his son is angry with him. Why? I mean, right away, what does the son know? Son knows, Dad, you've actually taken the fattened calf from the oldest son and you're giving it to the idiot son. That's what's happening. And you know what that feels like to a one? Stealing. It feels like stealing. Because the father divided all the assets between them. And he squandered all his, but now you're taking mine. And so he's sitting there and he's going, that feels like stealing. Remember, dad, we divided the estate. But idiot junior blew all his money and I've invested it. And that's why the cow is fat, dad. Let me tell you what your value is, reformers. You can show others the goodness of God. Praise God for you. You can show others the goodness of God. You can make it tangible. You can make it visible that there are people who actually want to do right, who actually want to do the good thing. Listen to me, ones. The first thing I want to challenge is to praise God that he has made you a one. God put that in you. He gave you a desire. From the moment you were born, you came out of the womb. You were born with a desire to do what's right, and that's beautiful. And I praise God for you ones. In fact, I think 1 Peter 2.9 describes a little bit of what a one looks like or what we look like in our culture when we come to a relationship with Jesus. Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may, what, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Here's a picture. There's darkness and there's light. And ones, God has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light for what purpose? 
for all of us, to declare the praises of God, we can show the goodness of God if you're a one. So can the other son, right? But particularly the ones. The ones you get a little frustrated sometimes. You don't have, you don't have a, you kind of got a horrible Christian testimony. You didn't go through like crazy life and imprisonment and all this stuff and finally come back to God. You're like, the biggest thing you can think of is, well, I, I once quit Splenda. <laughs> you don't have a good Christian like testimony and praise God for you and praise God for that. Don't underestimate your value. Praise God for you. You can show the goodness of God. It's a beautiful thing. So if you're a good person who's been called out of darkness into his wonderful light, then I want to challenge, what is the area where Satan is tempting you, ones? Where is the area, what's the darkness that God is calling you out of? So number four in your outline, what darkness is God calling out of the reformer? It's these questions. Can you trust God? Is God really good? Is God an idiot too? Let's see what the son says to his father. Verse 30, but he, 29 to 30, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, well, that wasn't in the former thing, but he certainly filled in the blank for him, his, his brother, right? He's, he's sure he's right about what his brother did. We're giving no indication of that earlier. With prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. See, if you're a one, not only does his son think that his brother's an idiot, he thinks his father just might be one too. And that's sin. You see, ones, here's the question for you as the good son. Do you trust your father? Who knows best, God or you? And I know you're sitting there saying, I'm a one. And you know what's best. And God would do well to listen to your wisdom. But ones who gave you your wisdom, God did trust him. God gave you your wisdom. What's your core motivation as ones? You want to be perfect. You want to be perfect. But please understand the desire for perfection will ruin you. It's simply not possible apart from Jesus. So the desire to be perfect will ruin you. In fact, many of you will say, well, as a one, my favorite verse in the Bible is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48, right? You want to like quote that. You're like, that's my favorite verse. But I think you don't understand how it's actually translated in Greek. In Greek, it's actually translated being complete. Be complete as your father in heaven is complete. In other words, it's speaking of wholeness, not perfection. That God is complete. He is whole. Certainly God is perfect. But he's saying like for us, we are to be complete. We're to be whole. We're to look at ourselves and love ourselves and look at others and love others like God does. Because if we look at ourselves with righteousness and we look at others as a bunch of idiots, then we do not have the heart of God. We're not complete. We are not whole. 
Some of you, when you heard that verse, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, you thought, so there is a chance. <laughs> nope. God wants you to see people like he does, and he wants you to love people like he does, and that's hard for you. Well, what do you avoid at all costs? Criticism. Criticism. And let me just be honest with you. If you're a one, the person that you're most critical of is yourself first. And God wants to call you out of self-reproach and call you into wholeness, into completeness, and to loving others like he does. It's criticism. The Bible tells us to make allowance for each other's faults. Some of you in this room, you're professional apologizers. You got no problem. You know you mess up all the time. And so you apologize and you just feel like it's at least once or twice or three times part of my day. You're a professional apologizer, but not once, right? What's the hardest thing for a one to say? I'm sorry. Very good. It's hard to say I'm sorry. Why? Because that means you have to admit that you were wrong. What happened? You're human. You're just human. You weren't called to be God. You're called as a human to come to Jesus and in a sense be like God in his wholeness until we see him face to face. See what ones do, instead of saying I'm sorry, they'll say, well, what I meant to do is this. So they might go on and on about how difficult it was and, and how good their intentions were and how it just simply didn't work out that they maybe didn't do whatever they were supposed to do or maybe that they did the wrong thing. And so what happens is they give their intentions, but they often fail to apologize for their actions. I meant to do this, but these things happened and life got crazy and, well, I just simply didn't do it. Right? They never actually apologized. I saw a hockey player this week who completely hacked a guy in a way that's probably going to get him suspended. He goes, well, you know, it just is what it is, and blah, 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 in his interview, and they're asking about it. He's like, well, it is what it is. He never said he was wrong. What does the one do? It's so hard to say I'm sorry, right? Because of criticism. Because we're afraid. I already criticize myself. And if I admit I'm wrong, then I open myself up for more criticism. Turn to your neighbor and just say, I, I was wrong. No, no, say it with conviction. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor, smile, and say, I was wrong. I was wrong, right? I was wrong. When you say, I was wrong, or I'm sorry, it's empowering, isn't it? Not for ones. Not for ones. It is not empowering at all. It's humiliating. Not for ones. Why? We all sin, we all sin in very different ways, and each of us, according to the Enneagram, we have what is a core sin, a sin that we're potentially more prone to than other sins, although any of us is prone to any sin. Wouldn't you agree? So I want to talk about what happens in a one when you're an unhealthy one, and that's the picture that Jesus is giving us here, because there's many of you in this room who you, over the course of your lifetime, you've understood the, your nature of a one, and because of Jesus Christ in your life, you're becoming more and more the person that you want to be toward yourself and toward others. And that's a beautiful thing. But when you're an unhealthy one, you become like the Pharisees. They're standing outside of Jesus' life. They're standing outside of Jesus' discipleship, and they have their arms crossed, and they're saying, I will refuse to go in. Why? Because the core sin of an unhealthy one is anger. It's anger. The core sin is anger. 
Ephesians 4.2 tells you and me to be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And isn't that hard for one to do? To bear with one another and their weaknesses and their mistakes and their lack of wisdom. To bear with one another in love. And then verse 26 and 27 says this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Some of you have heard that verse. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And if you're one in the room, you're probably thinking, then I will never sleep. <laughs> if anything, you're thinking that's actually how I go to sleep. I just count the sins of my spouse. One, <laughs> two, three. You got the whole list. You just roll it out. And that's what makes you go to sleep. Why do you think the older brother thinks the younger brother is an idiot in the story? Because we're all idiots compared to you ones. We all are. And that's okay. God has given you a unique wisdom. That's okay. Praise God for you. See, but the problem is when we don't allow to understand our uniquenesses and we don't make concession, we're not patient with other people, then what happens is we get what's called self righteousness. You know what self-righteousness is? It's being right within yourself. In other words, my perception is that I'm right within myself. And when you project that on other people, it doesn't work well in your life. You could have, want to have a perfect marriage and you can ruin it. You could want to raise perfect kids as a one and be self-righteous in yourself and try to reform them all the time and you could ruin your kids. The very thing you want, you could actually undo. Your desire for perfection can destroy you. You must learn as ones to relax. Relax. Sometimes just go into your pantry and like rearrange the the food that's in there, like spin the labels around so you can't actually tell what that can is. And, and you know what? Some of you, you just need to, you need to just let someone else use the remote for a little bit and it's okay. And like, like play with your stuff and, and it's going to be all right. And some of you in the room, like you're going to have to be okay with the fact that when you come home and you have little kids that a tornado has gone through your house and that there is debris everywhere and you just need to be okay with that. You just need to slow down, you need to relax and you need to make concessions for other people, don't let marriage get a, or don't let anger get a hold of your marriage and ruin you. Don't let this anger, this self-righteousness on the inside get a hold of you. You know why you'll never have perfect kids? Because they're being raised by you. <laughs> so relax. Help them. Come alongside. You're not going to have the perfect kid. You're not going to make the perfect kid. Let me tell you something. You know, your company, your clothes, your church will never be perfect. Sin and people, we will mess it up. We will. If you think you have, if you think you're perfect and you found Sun Grove and think this is a perfect church, well, you just messed it up by coming here because we're going to mess it up. We're not perfect, but we want to be real. We want to work toward reality. We want to work toward making concessions for others. We want to get better at that every time that we blow it. The church won't be perfect. We're going to mess it up. Listen, ones, I want to remind you that there was a bloody cross with a dead Jesus Christ taken off it that says, nobody's perfect but him. 
and he paid for it and got taken down and put in the grave and by the power of God being God himself rose to new life to proclaim victory over the idiocy and the sin and the ways that people mess stuff up and to show God's great love for us. There is a bloody cross that says there is one who is good, there is one who is perfect, his name is Jesus Christ and that's why you and I are called Christians. We're not just called your last name. <laughs> Ones. You want to be good. You have a desire to do what's right. And I praise God for you. What happens is this. In the story, God is going out and he's sending an invitation to the older son. Come in. Come into my story. Come into my big picture story. And the older son is standing there and saying, forget about it. I understand the story of me, and I want you to be all about the story of me. And his whole life he's been that way. God, I expect you to work out the story of me. You didn't give me one goat to celebrate with my friends. He couldn't even see that everything that was the father's was already his. He couldn't see it. He had his arms crossed, and he refused. You know what's interesting about this story? We know what the younger son did. He came home. He went in. He enjoyed real living. He came from being dead and alive and enjoying the story of God. You know what we don't know? We don't know what the older brother ever actually did. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day knew that he was talking about them. They're standing outside. And sometimes as ones, when we get unhealthy and stand in self-righteousness, we're like, I'm not going to enjoy God's party. I, I can't celebrate what God's doing because I expect God to make the story of me all about me. When in reality, the story of you only makes sense within the big story of God. Listen, ones, I praise God for you. I thank God for you. I think that the church exists because of you. I think that you have this unique capacity to show people the goodness of God and you have this unique capacity to understand grace in a way that many of us cannot because you understand that in your goodness, God still had to die for you and that he loves you that much. I praise God for you. Will you bow your heads, just close your eyes, thinking about your own life and God, I'm just praying for the ones right now. Uh, I know that some of them are reeling in self-condemnation right now. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would stand against that lie of the devil. God, I, right now in Jesus' name, we put the cross between the one and that criticism. That God, you paid for it, that you've made us perfect in and of yourself. God, we love you. And there may be some in this room today who for the first time you're realizing what Jesus did on the cross and that you need Jesus. Like, you don't need, you've tried your whole life to make yourself better. And you know you just haven't been able to. And some of you in this room, you're the one who's wandered far away and you're here today and haven't realized that maybe God's just drawing you back to himself and he loves you. And this is your day to respond to him. And others in the room, you've been self-righteous and you've refused to go into life, real life, the real party, because you've thought I'm good enough on my own. And God is challenging that darkness, calling you out of that in you today to say, please come in. Please come into life, real life. Please come into my party. Please come into what I'm doing. And if that's you today and you want forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, then right where you're seated, you just pray a prayer like this to say, Jesus, today I give you me. 
I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried and you rose to new life because you're God. I ask you to forgive me of everything I've done wrong. Wash me and clean me and make me a new creation on the inside. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. And right now, if you prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand anywhere in the room? We have in the loft as well. That today was the day you prayed that prayer. Yes, right there in the middle in the back. Awesome. Anywhere else, just hold your hand up. I'll see you. God bless you. Greatest decision you could ever make. And God, I pray right now just for us as a church, as we understand the Enneagram, that all these things would help us understand the story of us. But God, more importantly, that would draw us into the big picture story of you. God, help us as we understand the story of you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. amen. Hey, will you give it up for what God's doing and drawing us to new life together? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.